The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Bringing Precision Oncology to Early-Stage Lung Cancer with Adjuvant EGFR-Targeted Therapy Leading the Way, What Thoracic Surgeons Need to Know and Do. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FYQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, we would like to welcome you to our peer view program today. We will be talking today about surgically resectable lung cancer with EGFR mutation and novel discoveries, trials, and therapies um, in uh, lung cancer and EGFR setting. Uh, my name is Boris Sepeshi, and I'm a thoracic surgeon at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I would like to also introduce my colleague, Tina Cascone, um, who is a uh, medical oncologist at the Department of Thoracic and Head and Neck Medical Oncology with um, outstanding expertise in neoadjuvant therapies in surgically resectable setting, um, as, well as, um, as well as adjuvant therapies. Thank you, Boris. So today we will talk about understanding the gaps and opportunities for improvement in surgically resectable lung cancer, mainly with uh, EGFR mutations. Uh, we will also uh, present to you the data um, which um, we base this on, um, as well as where the future of surgically resectable lung cancer uh, in the EGFR setting is going. And uh, we will present you some cases um, and answer some audience questions. Um, so, um, We'll start with the understanding of the gaps and opportunities for the, uh, for the improvement in lung cancer. Um, as we all know, for decades, surgical therapy has been the mainstay of treatment of lung cancer and really offered the main opportunity for either cure local regional disease control or prolonged survival. However, through science, we have learned that many of the lung cancers actually um, are driven by mutations. And over the years, uh, drugs have been developed in this setting to target these mutations. And many of these drugs are actually currently available in stage four setting. Um, and slowly over time, they are now uh, being tested also in surgically resectable setting. And as you can see, uh, we can potentially divide lung cancer into about thirds. About a third of the lung cancers actually are KRAS mutations and about a third of them uh, have some sort of a targetable mutation, either EGFR, ALK, ROS1, RET, NTRK, BRAF, MET14, um, and as I mentioned, KRAS. And we have also learned a lot about uh, tumor microenvironment, and that's where immunotherapy comes in. However, today we're going to mainly talk about EGFR mutations, but as you can see over here, especially in the metastatic setting, all these other either mutations, alterations, or rearrangements uh, that could be tested uh, they already have targetable drugs and they are being used in the metastatic setting. However, despite of this knowledge, um, we um, as, a, as a group or uh, don't do as good of a job uh, testing all the patients for these mutations. I would say that all the patients in the metastatic setting um, have essentially 100% indication to have their tumors tested, especially the non-squamous, so adenocarcinomas, should always be tested to see if there is any sort of, any sort of a targetable uh, mutations where, where we have developed specific drugs for their treatment. But even in this setting, you can see that approximately 25% of patients still do not necessarily get this testing. And I think we need to be aware that uh, even in the surgical setting and for tumors greater than three centimeters um, in size, there certainly is a standard of care to test the tumors at least for the EGFR mutation. 
As I mentioned, surgical therapy for decades was the mainstay of, of treatment of stage one through three lung cancer. And it took, honestly, multiple decades to demonstrate the benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy uh, in the setting of surgically resectable lung cancer. And many of these, trial, many of these trials are well known, including uh, the LACE meta-analysis, which demonstrated overall uh, benefit of chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting for about 5%. However, as you can see, uh, with all of these trials, the benefit really increases with stage. So, so um, we now use chemotherapy for tumors greater than four centimeters in size, but uh, the benefit certainly increases in stage two and stage three. I think that we should note that these trials took a um, number of years to complete because of primary outcome being overall survival. And um, Many of them still uh, use the AJCC6 staging system. Some of them use AJCC7 staging system. And so as we uh, look at now the eighth staging system, um, we uh, need to look at some of the nuances and indications for uh, chemotherapy. But there is no question that um, adjuvant uh, or actually even neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy have benefit in surgically resectable lung cancer um, um, at least, uh, at least in, in tumors greater than uh, four centimeters in size. So um, we, we're gonna, at this point, talk a little bit more about the EGFR mutation. Um, and for the surgeons, I think the most important thing is that current, our current data suggest uh, that we should be sending off the tissue specimen or potentially liquid biopsies as well on patients with, with uh, um, non-squamous cell carcinomas. Um, so adenocarcinomas that are resected and greater than three centimeters in size, uh, it is recommended that all of these tumors get profiled uh, based on some of the data that we will show you from the ADURA trial. Um, this is the complexity of EGFR alterations in lung cancer. And when uh, we send off the, um, the specimen for, um, for mutation analysis, we can get actually variable results. And they could include either exon 18, 19, 20, or 21. Uh, these alterations are really quite complex, but I want to highlight that the most important ones to remember are exon 19 and exon 21, which are currently targetable. Um, with drugs and are part of standard of care uh, for surgically resectable um, lung cancer from stage, uh, uh, stage 1b, which are now tumors greater than 3 centimeters in size uh, based on the AJCC8 staging. Um, so again, I just want to highlight that it's exon 19 and 21 uh, that are targeted with the drug osimertinib, and those patients qualify for standard of care adjuvant therapy um, that we will go through. As mentioned before, the EGFR was actually discovered as a, as a driver mutations quite a bit ago, um, and it has really made its way into the treatment of patients in the metastatic setting. Um, just like the previous trials with chemotherapy, it does take a really long time to run adjuvant trials, especially with the outcome of overall survival. And, uh, and that's why it, it may have taken years for us to really uh, discover the benefit, as we will show you in the surgically resectable setting. Over the, last, uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, the um, evolution of understanding of EGFR uh, drugs have actually gone through numerous stages, and we are now at the, uh, at the third generation of, of drugs, which is, the, uh, which is the osimertinib. And a lot of research goes into understanding these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, as, well as, um, as well as what drives uh, resistance uh, to treatment. Um, however, at this point, we are already at the, at the stage of third generation of uh, EGFR inhibitors. 
Now, what is the what would be the what is the potential of this adjuvant therapy after surgery? As we all know, uh, the old surgical dictum has always been that if we can resect the disease, we can offer the patient the most cure. Uh, but we do need to understand that even a one centimeter tumor actually represents one billion cancer cells and a tremendous potential for uh, either mutations or ability of these cancer cells to metastasize. And therefore, even in, in early setting, there is certainly a risk that a micrometastatic disease may, may develop. Um, so it is important to combine treatment, not only by resecting the visible disease that we do as surgeons, uh, but also try to understand uh, the, the, the concept of micrometastatic disease and potential recurrence and how we can uh, decrease the level of recurrence. So the goals are to really, obviously, to achieve cure, um, which we achieve as surgeons through local regional disease control, but we have to understand this biology, uh, control as well, uh, distant recurrence uh, or local regional recurrence. And we also need to uh, keep looking to identify patients uh, who may not benefit for any of the adjuvant therapies and may potentially still be cured with surgery alone. And there's a lot of research going into this era as well. So at this point, I'd like to introduce my colleague, um, uh, Tina Cascone, who will take us through uh, some, of the, um, some of the trials that led to the approval of standard of care therapy with uh, EGFR inhibitors. Thank you, Boris. Uh, thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for uh, um, you know, this wonderful summary uh, to this point. And you're absolutely right. Uh, definitely the, um, the, 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 the pipeline of EGFR um, uh, targeted therapies that we have at this point in time has seen a, you know, a, an incredible evolution over the past 15 years. And as you mentioned, with osimertinib, we are at the third generation. We're definitely evolving towards um, more advanced inhibitors that can help us to try to circumvent mechanisms of resistance to the prior generation. But let me um, summarize for you here um, the clinical trial data that uh, tested and evaluated uh, earlier generation uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, in, the, um, in patients with uh, uh, stage 1b to 3a, in this case, um, EGFR wild type and EGFR mutant uh, uh, non-small cell lung cancer. These are the results of the RADIANT trial uh, published a few years ago by uh, Dr. Karen Kelly and colleagues, uh, where you can see on the uh, left, uh, the uh, DFS didn't really um, change, didn't have uh, uh, any changes uh, in the intention to treat population between placebo uh, and erlotinib with an hazard ratio of 0.9. But uh, in the EGFR mutant subgroup, there was an encouraging uh, improvement uh, in the DFS when patients were treated with um, adjuvant erlotinib as compared to placebo with an hazard ratio of 0.61, although um, this didn't achieve statistically significant, uh, uh, mainly because of the hierarchical design of the study. The SELECT was a, a phase two trial published uh, now a couple of years ago of adjuvant erlotinib in patients with resected uh, EGFR mutant osmosis cell lung cancer. Uh, this trial demonstrated an improvement uh, in the uh, two-year DFS in EGFR mutant population as compared to the um, molecularly matched wild type. Uh, population with, um, you know, an unchanged safety profile to what we uh, know uh, with, uh, with erlotinib and uh, second-generation TKIs. And then uh, I want to point out here the adjuvant C-TONG phase 3 trial. 
uh, which tested um, post-operative adjuvant gefitinib uh, versus uh, platinum-based chemotherapy in patients with stage 2, 3A EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. You can see here um, there was a, a benefit in DFS uh, with gefitinib as compared to cisplatinum vinorelbin in this population of patients. Although I want to also point out that most recently um, the authors have uh, reported the overall survival outcomes of this trial, uh, which didn't seem to pan out as compared to the benefit that we've seen here with the DFS. And then, um, you know, practice changing uh, phase three data from the uh, ADORA trial uh, that tested third generation EGFR kinase inhibitor osimertinib, 80 milligram once a daily in the adjuvant setting for three years uh, as compared to placebo in patients, as you can see on the um, left, uh, with stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer, completely resected uh, with or without, treated with or without adjuvant platinum-based chemotherapies. Um, patients were stratified by stage, uh, by EGFR um, uh, type of mutation, exon 19 deletion as compared to the L858R exon 21 substitution, uh, as well as race. Um, uh, the, the treatment was planned for three years and uh, continued until disease recurrence, treatment completion or discontinuation criterion met. A primary endpoint of the study was disease-free survival uh, in a stage two and three A patients uh, designed for superiority under the uh, ASAM DFS of hazard ratio 0.7. And this is very important to point out uh, because of the results of the trial we're gonna present um, in just a few seconds. Uh, there were se uh, several sec secondary endpoints, uh, DFS in the overall population, uh, overall survival, safety, and also uh, health-related quality of life. So here we have the Kaplan-Meier curves uh, demonstrating DFS according to investigator assessment on the left. Uh, you can see that in patients with stage 2 to 3A disease, at 24 months, 90% of the population in the Osimertinib group um, uh, and 44% of those in the placebo group uh, were alive and disease-free with an hazard ratio of 0 0.17 um, uh, in terms of disease recurrence of that with osimertinib as compared to placebo. And you can see in the stage 1B um, to 3A disease at 24 months, 89% of the population of patients in the OC group and 52% of those in the placebo group were alive and disease-free with an hazard ratio favoring osimertinib of 0 0.2. Here you see a foster plot, uh, forest plot with a, um, uh, with a, a DFS uh, benefit across subgroup in the overall population. Um, overall, all subgroups benefit from a simertinib as compared to placebo. I want to point out that the stage 3A population had the largest benefit, although we saw uh, a very encouraging hazard ratio 0.39 in patients with the stage uh, 1B. Um, as expected, perhaps the AGFR 19 deletion had um, a major benefit, greater benefit, uh, even compared to the uh, 858R. Uh, and uh, also patients who receive adjuvant chemotherapy had a slightly, um, you know, uh, in, more improved hazard ratio as compared to uh, those who didn't. Um, here I want to show you the uh, DFS Kaplan-Meier uh, curves um, by disease stage. So as we just mentioned in the stage 1B patient population, patients who received osimertinib uh, um, had an hazard ratio with 0 0.39 uh, as compared to, compared to placebo. And you can see the um, incredible separation of the curves with incredible benefit in stage 2 and 3A patients with an hazard ratio of 0 0.17 and 0 0.12 respectively. 
effectively. Tina, let me let me just stop there for one second. If you can go the one sure. slide back, there's something that I would like to highlight over here that that the Adora actually included the AJCC8 staging, which has actually really changed stage one B. Um, well, actually, the stage 1B tumors uh, were not necessarily classified by size of 4 centimeters, and they have included patients here for treatment who had tumors greater than 3 centimeters in size. And so I think this is an important point because for the longest time we had, uh, as surgeons, kind of in our, in our head that, that, that we should refer patients to our medical oncologists if they have tumors greater than 4 centimeters in size for adjuvant treatment. But actually now, because uh, Adura included patients uh, with, uh, they didn't differentiate the stage 1B by, by size, and I'm sorry, it was AJCC7, but, but uh, they included tumors greater than three centimeters in size. So I think, I think as surgeons, we need to think about referring patients after upfront resections for sure if they have tumors greater than three centimeters in size. Absolutely, Boris. I think this is a wonderful point, and thank you for, uh, um, you know, uh, emphasizing that. And perhaps I can, going back to the uh, the, the the concept that you just present to us, um, perhaps for the surgeon community, um, perhaps you can uh, in, engage the medical oncologist early on, uh, even when you have a, a, a really early stage in small tumors, because that can actually uh, be very important also for uh, profiling purposes. Uh, we can profile the tumor so from baseline biopsies early on um, and not only uh, in the surgical specimen. So absolutely an important point to try to engage uh, in a multidisciplinary setting uh, your colleagues' medical oncology, even when you have have patients with a very early stage disease. Um, so here we have the uh, DFS Kaplan-Meier curves in the Adora trial uh, with and without adjuvant chemotherapy. As I mentioned earlier for the, from the forest plot, you can see that patients who received platinum-based chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting prior to uh, uh, osimertinib uh, had definitely um, you know, uh, an advantage uh, with a greater uh, benefit uh, in the DFS uh, 0.16 as a ratio. And uh, the DFS, uh, um, uh, the other ratio for the DFS in patients who did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy, as you can see on the right, was 0.23. So definitely uh, uh, an incredible benefit in both population of patients. But here I wanted to illustrate, we, we have known that EGFR mutant population um, seems to have a greater responses to adjuvant chemotherapy, chemotherapy, platinum-based chemotherapy as compared to the wild type. And I think those DFS curves illustrate that very well in the adjuvant setting. Um, the Adora trial didn't reveal any new safety signals. We have uh, adverse events very well known uh, in terms of profile uh, with, uh, with the osimertinib. And so in conclusion for, for, uh, for this community, uh, the adjuvant osimertinib is the first tyrosine kinase inhibitor in a global phase three trial that has shown uh, an important, um, dramatic, uh, significant, and clinically meaningful improvement in DFS uh, in uh, patients with uh, resected stage 1b to 3a EGFR mutant small cell lung cancer. We're still waiting for the overall survival, uh, uh, but uh, the benefit was unprecedented. Uh, 
and uh, um, consistent improvement in DFS was seen uh, regardless whether the patients received or not prior adjuvant chemotherapy with even an improved hazard ratio with adjuvant chemotherapy, as I just shown you. And as mentioned, the safety profile uh, was consistent with what we had known uh, with EGFR uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, in this setting. And so the FDA approved the simertinib for adjuvant therapy after surgical resections uh, of the tumors in patients with non-small cell lung cancer with EGFR exon 19 deletion or exon 21 uh, L858R uh, substitution mutations as approved by an FDA-approved test. So I want to leave here some uh, uh, important uh, points for discussion from the Adora trial, and Boris and I will do this, uh, uh, you know, interactively. So 11% um, of patients who receive adjuvanosimertinib had DFS events, as defined here, of course, by disease recurrence or death, as compared to 46%, as you can see here from these uh, SAC bars, uh, in patients treated with placebo arm. If you look at the patients treated with osimertinib, that 11, that 11%, the majority of patients with recurrence had a local regional recurrence only, um, with only 38% uh, of patients having metastatic recurrence as compared to 61% of patients who had instead in the placebo arm. And so this is illustrating how perhaps um, what Boris was mentioning right at the beginning uh, of our journey here of this talk, um, that um, administering um, uh, you know, a systemic therapy, in this case of simortinib in the adjuvant setting, could perhaps really be very helpful to uh, eliminate and suppress a micrometastatic disease that can be responsible for distance metastasis. Yeah, I think, actually, you know, if you can go just one back, I would like to make a point here as a surgeon. You know, looking back at this trial, I think that is remarkable that these were upfront resected patients. And even though in the institutions where we practice with TINA, we do have a tendency to give a lot of neoadjuvant treatment. But, uh, but looking, uh, looking at the higher sort of local regional recurrence rate, um, rather than the distant rate, uh, th that's pretty much consistent with the data in surgical re literature after surgical resection um, of uh, stage one through three lung cancer to have approximately, you know, 10 to 15% local regional recurrence rate. Uh, it does uh, still uh, speak to the importance of uh, excellent uh, surgery performed with, with nodal disease dissection, trying to obtain negative margins, etc. And a lot of judgment goes into that. But, but uh, from the biology standpoint, we are definitely learning over here that uh, these drugs, these systemic drugs, really do a wonderful job of controlling the distant disease. And we did not have this for decades. So, um, so I think that this is, uh, this is the main point to study where these recurrences occur and then also how we can improve as surgeons, not only with our surgical techniques and adequate resection, but how important it is to put, uh, put the, the disease of the patient in the context and make sure the patient gets all the treatment, both systemic and local, as they need. Absolutely, Boris. If we think about the fact that, uh, the, 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 as you mentioned at the beginning, the vast majority of the patients, if treated, more than 50% of them overall, if treated with surgery alone, will experience relapse of the disease. And so this is the most important setting where by administering a systemic therapy in the perioperative setting, whether in this case adjuvant, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in some cases, and now in the context of trial, as you will discuss uh, just in a, in a few minutes in the neoadjuvant setting, we have the greatest opportunity to uh, eliminate and suppress uh, micrometastatic disease will be responsible, that will be responsible for, uh, for uh, relapse. 
Here is the breakdown of the data we are just discussing. So 11% of the patient in the OC Martinic group had disease recurrence at any location. But if we, if we look at what these locations are, 6% in the lung, uh, 3% in the lymph nodes, and only 1% is compared to 10% in the CNS. And this is extremely important. OC Martinic has, has a wonderful penetration in the CNS. And this data demonstrates how we can prevent um, uh, CNS disease. As you can see here, the CNS, the median CNS DFS was 48 percent uh, in the placebo arm as compared to non-rich with the OC Martinib. And this is uh, absolutely important in preventing um, metastatic brain disease, uh, CNS disease in this setting. Um, let's uh, uh, talk about the post-operative post chemotherapy use. I touched base, we touched base on this quickly uh, earlier. I just want to emphasize that overall 60% of patients in this trial received adjuvant platinum-based chemotherapy for a median duration of the, our standard four cycles uh, consistently across treatment arms. Um, as expected, the vast majority of the patients received um, uh, platinum-based chemotherapy in the stage two and 3A disease, and uh, Boris mentioned about the inclusion of 1B disease here. Uh, and of course, um, the patients with, um, you know, four centimeters of grade in the stage 1B also received chemotherapy here. Um, this was uh, most frequently given to patients uh, less than 70 uh, years uh, of age and in patients with a good performance status. Uh, and uh, again, uh, DFS uh, in patients with and without adjuvant chemotherapy is shown here by these Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, benefit was seen uh, with osimertinib as compared to placebo, regardless of the administration of adjuvant um, platinum-based chemotherapy. But I want to point out again uh, the hazard ratio 0.16 and uh, 0.23 with adjuvant as compared to no adjuvant chemotherapy, respectively. And so um, uh, another point of discussion that is very important for our patient is uh, how the, um, uh, the osimertinib um, improve our quality of life of our patient. So these are patient-reported outcomes. Um, there was overall no differences between osimertinib and placebo in the time to deterioration uh, of what we call the SF36 um, uh, health domains. The uh, uh, SF36 is a generic uh, health survey. As you can see here from the forest plot, um, uh, really, the social functioning seemed to be, um, you know, improved, um, favored with uh, osimertinib as compared to uh, placebo, uh, as well as uh, perhaps um, the, uh, the body pain. Uh, I will then now pass it to Boris. He will talk to us uh, about other trials assessing these therapies in the perioperative setting. Well, th thank you, Tina, very much. So, um, you know, as, uh, as we have discussed before, and even as, this, as the whole story of lung cancer, we, we uh, mentioned before that um, it was adjuvant chemotherapy that really became the standard of care and the neoadjuvant chemotherapy trials essentially were stopped historically when the meta-analysis of the benefit of the adjuvant treatment came about. However, most of the data that we look at from chemotherapy suggests that the benefit of treatment either before or after surgery is about the same. And so I think that we need to view this also from the biology of the cancer standpoint. I think when we look at these patients, we also need to look at, you know, what is the situation? Uh, when is the therapy best administered so the patient can tolerate it, uh, tolerate it the best? So uh, there certainly is a concept of treating these patients early, even with neoadjuvant treatment. And I will show you some cases where the neoadjuvant treatment actually 
may potentially make uh, surgical resection because of the, the tumor response uh, perhaps easier or perhaps uh, may convert uh, pneumonectomy into a uh, lesser resection such as bilobectomy or, or lobectomy, although that may sometimes be difficult uh, to prove. Um, however, as I mentioned, biologically, even one centimeter tumor has one billion cancer cell, and, and so the cat is sort of out of the bag. Um, so when we think about here, if, even without trials, we always think about giving patients all the treatment. And so that's my introduction to the NeoAdura trial, which actually wants to test um, the TKI inhibitors uh, prior to surgical resection. And this is the study design is, again, uh, the patient should be surgically resectable with stage 2 to 3B disease. Again, we're talking about uh, patients who have EGFR mutations, either exon 19 or exon 21. Uh, these mutations would be diagnosed either on a biopsy or, or liquid biopsy. This trial has actually three arms, essentially testing patients, again, with standard of care uh, chemotherapy plus placebo, then osimertinib plus uh, chemotherapy and osimertinib um, alone, and essentially asking uh, three, different, three different questions here. Uh, patients would receive this for um, approximately you know, nine weeks. Uh, the, each cycle of chemotherapy is usually given uh, once every 21 days. This would be followed by surgery. And uh, primary outcome is, uh, is this short-term endpoint or a surrogate endpoint uh, that has been used in many of immunotherapy trials uh, called either major pathological or pathological complete response. I want to define those that pathological complete response is actually 0% viable tumor cells uh, in the final specimen and uh, major pathological response represents less than 10% of uh, viable cells in the, spe in, in the specimen. Um, and we, there has been uh, numerous studies that demonstrated association between this great response to neoadjuvant immunotherapy uh, based on these two outcome measures and long-term outcomes such as overall survival. Um, uh, and uh, yet these points are still not FDA approved as surrogate endpoints. Um, however, this has continued to be studies. And so these patients then would receive um, standard of care depending on which arm they were on or up to... Um, uh, up to additional, um, you know, treatment. And, uh, and obviously all of these trials also need to measure the event-free and overall survival. And as you can see over here, patient will be followed for five years uh, and they will be evaluated in, uh, in uh, standard uh, intervals. Now, we already have uh, some preliminary um, evidence about what it's like to operate after neoadjuvant um, TKI inhibitors, and uh, this was published by, uh, by the group from New York uh, about uh, performing resections after the neoadjuvant uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There has been a lot, um, lot of discussion among surgeons uh, with the advent of these uh, different kinds of novel therapies, such as immunotherapy and TKI inhibitors, uh, whether does it make surgery easier, does it make it harder, you know, what should we learn about this? And uh, this publication has, has demonstrated, uh, it was a basically case report of two cases um, where they highlighted actually variable responses with one patient having um, sort of a different quality of the tissue um, at the time of resection and one patient uh, actually had relatively straightforward resection. But if you can see over here on the, on, on the slides where um, the images uh, above are pre-treatment and images below a post-treatment, you can actually see quite a significant uh, radiographic response. So this really speaks to the effectiveness of these drugs. Um, I, I have to say that my own experience in operating on patients with TKI inhibitors 
um, also corroborates what was written here and, and demonstrated in this article. Um, I feel that the TKI inhibitors, the longer they are used, they, they do change the quality of the tissue, especially in the lymph nodes, and they can obliterate the surgical planes. And so I think surgeons do need to be aware of this. Now, the, the three months treatment that is used in neoadjuvant setting is probably not as significant, but from personal experience, I have operated on some patients with metastatic disease who have been on TKIs for, for nine months or a year. And, and my personal experience is that those dissections are really much more challenging and I generally approach them with an, um, with an open thoracotomy approach. And so I wanted to actually mention here uh, one of the recent cases that I, that I had of a patient. Uh, this was a 57-year-old female, never smoker, very healthy, exercises and runs every day. Um, and as you all know, there's more and more of these patients who we see, especially um, you know, younger women who, who, who never smoked, um, who seem to uh, develop lung cancer. Uh, and generally, some of these lung cancers uh, do uh, demonstrate EGFR mutation. And this patient um, had a very large tumor and was diagnosed with uh, uh, EGFR positive, uh, you know, exon 21 mutation. Um, and she had, uh, uh, this was her, this was her image prior to the, uh, uh, prior to the start of the treatment. You can see up above that uh, she actually had a large greater than seven centimeter tumor in the right upper lobe that was uh, extending across the fissure into her middle lobe. Uh, there was also on a PET-CT scan evidence of a uh, level 11 lymph node that was positive. So we staged her as T4N1. And uh, uh, she, her, her other mediastinal lymph nodes were negative on, on uh, staging. Uh, she had small nodule in the left lower lobe. And uh, so she, there was an opportunity for us to classify her as oligometastatic disease. And so actually she received three months of uh, neoadjuvant osimertinib, and uh, then we control this disease uh, with surgical resection. She still required a bilobectomy. Um, and again, I felt the lymph nodes um, were just a little bit sticky, but she underwent complete R0 resection, and now she will receive adjuvant uh, chemotherapy, and she will continue on osimertinib for three years uh, thereafter. Um, here's another trial that's in the works, and this is called ADURA2. Um, and as we mentioned uh, with, the, with the main Adura trial, that the benefit was in patients who had tumors greater than three centimeters in size. But this, is, this Adura 2 is an extremely important trial for surgeons because now we're talking about giving potentially three years of therapy to patients with tumors from one to three centimeters in size. These are the earliest tumors that we always believed as surgeons that we can cure these patients. And as, we, and as we all know, even in the earliest setting, uh, in patients who especially have um, slightly higher risk features, such as tumors greater than two centimeters in size, or if they have lymphovascular invasion, or if more than 20% have either micropapillary, you know, solid or complex um, adenocarcinoma histology, these are the patients who even in the earlier setting uh, may potentially develop future, um, future recurrence. And this is the trial, phase three ADURA trial, they will essentially enroll this population, uh, patients uh, with, with tumors uh, greater than um, uh, from stage 1A2 um, or stage 1A3. So um, uh, anybody who has tumors greater than one centimeter in size, these patients will hopefully undergo complete R0 resection. Again, we're talking about exon 19 and 21 mutations. I want to still reiterate that. 
Um, and tumor will obviously be tested for you know, the tumor size, LDI, tumor histology, and patients will then be randomized uh, for adjuvant osimertinib, again, for three years versus uh, placebo. And again, with the primary endpoint being uh, disease-free survival um, rather than overall survival, as it is a shorter, uh, shorter endpoint than, uh, than a five-year overall survival, because as we have learned, these trials do take a long time to complete. And these are, again, the key inclusion, inclusion criteria. It's essentially stage 1A2 and, and 1A3 patients um, with uh, non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous histology, so mainly adenocarcinomas. And again, it's exon 19 and exon 21 mutations. So um, uh, obviously patients who, so the patients who have incomplete resections had either wedge or pneumonectomy. So this would be the segmentectomy or lobectomy that would be included or any other histologies would be excluded. And I also want to mention that the field is going uh, in this direction of targeted therapy and potentially targeted therapy in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, there's an effort through uh, Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium and the LEADER trial to profile 1,000 patients, uh, anticipating that, that approximately 35% of patients um, with surgically resectable lung cancer will have one of these targetable mutations. And now we have also added the uh, KRAS G12C mutation to this as well. Um, as, uh, as mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, uh, the, these, these drugs are already in the metastatic setting, and the aim of the um, LCMC4 consortium is to enroll patients on these targeted therapy trials uh, in the perioperative setting. Boris, um, before yes. we get into the discussion, I just wanted to make a comment, if I may. I actually want to commend you for... Uh, um, you know, offering us the example of uh, implementing, right, and uh, three months of neoadjuvant or simertinib in a patients with T4N1 um, potentially uh, oligometastatic disease, offering to this patient the opportunity to enjoy, as you mentioned, a pathological response, perhaps in the resected tumor, adjuvant chemotherapy uh, in the postoperative setting, uh, and the continuation of osimertinib for three years. So I think this is a wonderful example of uh, implementing, you know, the most effective the systemic therapies really early on in the biological history of the disease from the neoadjuvant to the postoperative setting. So it will be very important from the um, Neodora trial um, to, um, you know, Tell us whether the surrogate point of pathological complete response, major pathological um, response in this setting after TKI, as much as we have learned from the uh, immunotherapy and chemoimmunotherapy setting, whether those surrogates will really pan out as uh, um, uh, clinical uh, endpoints of survival benefit of DFS, uh, EFS, and OS benefit. So uh, I think you gave us a wonderful example of how we can benefit our patients by implementing those strategies early on, perhaps even earlier than the adjuvant setting and continuing the adjuvant setting to, um, you know, eliminate metastatic disease and potentially cure them. Well, th thank you. And I, you know, as I, as I think of these patients, uh, especially this one, you know, I, I think about what is the most important to treat right now. And, and, and I think that there is a little bit of a, of, a, of a change in thinking or my thinking as a surgeon that when I see a patient who, you know, demonstrates this large of a cancer it used to be, hey, let's rush the patient to the operating room and resect everything. And that was possible in this situation. But then the patient needs to go through some recovery, obviously. The tumor was very large. 
Uh, perhaps some of my colleagues would approach it through minimally invasive techniques, but I think that, that obviously doing this through a thoracotomy, there's no harm in that. But patients really still need to recover from that. And, and even under the best setting, uh, generally patients can start their adjuvant treatment usually around four weeks, which still delays you know, their systemic treatment. And this is why in this particular patient, I felt, hey, you can start your systemic treatment and maybe we can start addressing your, your risk of micromyostatic disease right away. We know we are going to still have local disease control, some local disease control for this tumor. So whether I resect it tomorrow or whether I resect it three months later, that actually doesn't matter as much. I know I can provide it local regional disease control, but we need to address the micrometastatic disease as soon as possible. So I felt like this patient has been at least right now protected from distant disease to, to some extent uh, because she received that neoadjuvant treatment. Now we resected her. She has local regional disease control. And I actually have no problem starting TKI inhibitors right away. Essentially, when she's discharged from the hospital, we don't have any evidence that there would be any detrimental effect to healing or anything like that. And when she heals for about four weeks or six weeks after surgery, she can receive chemo, as, 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 as was demonstrated to be beneficial in this setting. And then she will continue on this. So I think that, that as, we, as we think as surgeons, it's important for us to have a good collaboration with medical oncologists and really try to create a long-term strategy for the best for the best chance of patient being cured. Whether we operate next week or whether we operate eight or twelve weeks down the road, does not. I don't. I don't think that matters as much. I think what matters is 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 doing being able to do a good job along the way, preserve patients' quality of life, and give the patients sort of the best chance there. So. And we can discuss some some more of these cases, uh, you know, at this uh, at this point. Um, so um, so here we have another case of a patient uh, who is 58 years old, male, who was uh, clinically diagnosed with T3N1 mass in the right upper lobe. So this would be a, a stage three lung cancer. Um, and this was a this was a uh, this was an adenocarcinoma. It seems like that the EBAS demonstrated that mediastinal lymph nodes were negative for malignancy, so there was no N2 disease. But again, still still a stage three A um, based on the the new staging system. So patients, this patient underwent actually um, standard of care uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, as we know, it's still a little bit difficult to get all the profiling from original biopsies. Uh, patient had a good response, underwent uncomplicated VADS right upper lobectomy with neural dissection, and had a really good downstaging. The tumor was small, uh, and final pathology was YPT2 and 0, but then the molecular profiling was uh, was shown, and patient was actually demonstrated to have an EGFR, exon 21, uh, mutant lung cancer. So uh, if I if I resected this patient and send, send this patient to you, uh, Tina, uh, how would you approach this? When do you When do you think the surgeon should have discussed um, sort of um, the possibility of adjuvant therapy, and and I do that sort of sort of right away in in some of these patients, especially now, even if they get neoadjuvant treatment, I usually try to tell the patients we need to see what the final pathological specimen shows, and 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 there may be a possibility that we have something else for you that can prevent you from other disease, right? Absolutely, Boris. Uh, I I think this is a, a a very important point of discussion and an educational point. Um, we should discuss um, in a multidisciplinary setting and with our patients uh, early on 
what are the treatment strategies uh, in a combinatorial type of approach that we can offer these patients um, for a chance of cure. So absolutely, the surgeons should discuss, first of all, um, with, the, um, with the multidisciplinary team, um, uh, uh, the medical oncologist, the interventional pulmonologist, the radiologist, the radiation oncologist uh, in some specific situations. And together in this multidisciplinary setting, we can offer to our patients all the different perspectives to implement, in addition to surgery, uh, systemic therapy based on the molecular profiling uh, after surgery, in this case, in the adjuvant setting, or perhaps in the context of the Neodora trial, right? Perhaps even in the new adjuvant setting, um, together with, uh, with chemotherapy. And let me uh, point out an important um, uh, piece of data that you uh, briefly mentioned uh, in the introduction, in the, in the background, when we discuss about what does adjuvant um, chemotherapy uh, gives us in terms of improvement in survival from the LACE meta-analysis. Although neoadjuvant and adjuvant chemotherapy have not been compared head to head, from meta-analysis, we know that that 5% holds true, uh, regardless of giving chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting. So absolutely, if the patient has received neoadjuvant chemotherapy for cycles, I would not give additional uh, chemotherapy. Uh, but definitely, I would administer you know, adjuvant or simertinib based on the EGFR mutation uh, that you have pointed out. Yeah, so I, I want to make this point that this is what I have learned from my medical oncology colleagues is that essentially the four cycles of chemotherapy in the perioperative setting seems to be the standard of care. I know that, uh, that from medical oncology standpoint in metastatic setting, you know, the chemotherapy is giving for a longer period of time or for more cycles. But I think for us surgeons, I think remembering the four cycles as we talk with the patients and, and one cycle I remember is 21 days. Um, and so whether the and, and majority of the of the clinical trials, uh, whether they are in, in perioperative setting, whether they are with chemoimmunotherapy, uh, they actually use four cycles. So I think this is important to remember that if we resect patients up front and then we say, if the patient asks us, am I going to get chemotherapy and how long? I generally tell, tell patients, well, it depends how you tolerate it, but the standard, if you can tolerate it, is to get four cycles and one cycle is 21 days. So it's three weeks. So it's three weeks times four. And this patient already received that. So, so whether it's upfront or after, it's a standard. So I guess we can all agree that since this patient has, a, has an EGFR targetable mutation, you would give osimertinib for three years, right? Absolutely. And you would only stop if there were some you know, unexpected side effects or, or something like that. Uh, I, would, I would. I would tend to manage the side effects uh, of osimertinib as much as possible to still try to give the patient the opportunity to complete the three years course. As discussed, okay. as we uh, you know, have learned so far, the safety profiling of osimertinib is a third generation. It's pretty, it's pretty well, well tolerated. So we're definitely trying to manage uh, and have consults on board to, to help us to manage this toxicity if we have issues uh, to try to maintain the drug on board. Okay, um, we can um, look another case over here. Uh, so this is a 79-year-old um, female with a 15-pack-year history of smoking who presents with clinical uh, T2A N0 mass in the left lower lobe. Uh, she seems to have marginal pulmonary function tests and performance status of one. She has relatively small tumor. Um, it, is, it is an adenocarcinoma. Um, she undergoes... Uh, uh, lung function tests and her predicted DLCO is uh, 35%. And she actually uh, was offered stereotactic radiation treatment, by, by, but she refused that. She preferred surgical resection. So she underwent 
superior segmentectomy, so she only lost approximately 5% of her lung function for this tumor. And, uh, and despite of being a smoker, um, she was found to have exon 19 deletion. Um, and I would also like to make a point over here is that even the NCN um, um, guidelines uh, suggest uh, testing all patients regardless of whether they are smokers and non-smokers if, if they have uh, non-squamous histology. And so uh, even though we tend to think that, that uh, EGFR mutations are more likely in patients who are non-smokers, but as you can see, they can also occur in this setting. So, Boris, I want to emphasize that as a medical oncologist, I would encourage the community when possible uh, to test all our patients. Yes, yes, it is, it is standard of care to test the patient. So here are some of the questions for the discussion. So uh, the ADORA trial only uh, included lobectomy or greater patients. Is this patient eligible for adjuvant osimertinib? Well, from my standpoint as a surgeon, this patient under, underwent the most optimal oncological resection that she could tolerate. So whether it's a lobectomy or a segmentectomy, she underwent the resection for local regional disease control uh, and lymph node dissection. She, she got final staging. Um, we we uh, cannot necessarily look at this only from the technical aspects of lobectomy, but also from the biology of the disease. And if, if, if her tumor is greater than three centimeters in size and she has an EGFR mutation, from my standpoint, I would refer her for consideration of adjuvant osimertinib. What do you think? Absolutely. Does, does lobectomy Absolutely. versus segmentectomy matter here? No, I, absolutely. I, I think that this patient should be referred to us for consideration of adjuvant chemotherapy. As far as I'm concerned with the AJCC8, this is still with a 2B, a pathological uh, resection, a T2B, as you mentioned, if I, if I read correctly in the, in the stem of the question. This is a patient that would benefit from, uh, um, from uh, adjuvant osimertinib. Yeah, she was T, so she was T2A. So I think this is where this question really comes to. If she had tumor three to, let's say her tumor was three and a half centimeters, we agree that, that she should get treatment and you're saying that you would give her adjuvant osimertinib for three years. Would you give her chemotherapy with PS of one and tumor 3.5 centimeters in size? That's a very tricky question. So um, if there are no additional features that um, could make me think of a poor prognosis, as you mentioned among the the criteria, right, that we use for the uh, for the stage one A, two and three for the uh, for the adora for the um, for the adjuvant adora. Then in that case, perhaps no. Uh, in the in the stem of the question, I thought that she was a, a P T two B. That would that would make us consider, you know, definitely a discussion with our colleagues. But if you have a tumor that doesn't have those prognostic uh, negative features and that doesn't have a size that reaches the four centimeters, perhaps we could consider to avoid the adjuvant chemotherapy. But I would not spare the adjuvant osimertinib to this patient. This patient might benefit from the adjuvant osimertinib. Absolutely. Now, 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 the, another question would be: um, so obviously, these are some of the nuances of of our care. And I think that even as surgeons, you know, as we look at our final pathological report and see our patients in post-operative setting and discuss the pathological report and risk of recurrence uh, when the patient asks us, I think that these are important things. But here's another question. As we know, uh, we now also have an uh, FDA-approved immunotherapy regimen in patients who demonstrate pdl one expression in their tumor greater than 1%. What if this patient's concomitantly after resection, demonstrated EGFR mutation and let's say PDL1 expression of 20%. Should she be treated with adjuvant atezolizumab, which has demonstrated benefit in this setting as well, 
or should she be treated with osimertinib or both? Can you can you enlighten us on that from a medical oncology standpoint? Sure, sure. These are situations that we really see in real life. Um, Please administer adjuvanosimertinib to these patients. This patient has an, uh, you know, oncogenically driven tumors and needs TKI in the adjuvant setting. Uh, the Empowered 010 led to the approval of the adjuvanatezolizumab for a pdl one positive population 1% and above for one year in the adjuvant setting. Uh, although um, some portion of the population in that uh, trial had EGFR uh, and ALK, alterations, uh, really the benefit uh, in this population is uh, driven in the adjuvant setting by a TKI, not by an immunotherapy. We know retrospectively that uh, patients with these aberrations tend to not respond very well to immunotherapy. So the answer to the third bullet is osimertinib alone in the Well, thank you. That, so that's what I learned as well, that essentially if there is a targetable mutation for a patient, that, that, the, that the effectiveness of targeted therapy sort of supersedes, um, su- supersedes immunotherapy in this setting. I can maybe imagine that as this information gets a little bit more uh, to the patients, I mean, I would just ask you, how would you approach a patient who says, I don't want to get chemotherapy, you know, I heard chemotherapy is really bad, um, if, if, if patient for some reason just refused chemotherapy, would you be willing just to, just to treat them? I mean, it's so much more convenient to have an oral regimen, right, with, a, with osimertinib and, and perhaps better side effect profile. Uh, do you think that would be legitimate if we documented it, uh, you know, in the chart to skip chemotherapy if patient really refuses for whatever reasons? Yeah, that's a, that's an important question, uh, and I think it's a, it's a, it's paramount to discuss with our patients what's the rationale, right, of these decisions in terms of you know um, therapeutic approach and strategies. So I'll, I'll tend to discuss with our patients um, why platinum-based chemotherapy could be important in the setting. But to your point, um, from the Adora trial, we learned that there is benefit in DFS from uh, osimertinib, regardless, right, of adjuvant um, chemotherapy platinum-based chemotherapy. Just to remind you guys, um, uh, to the audience, at 0.16, at 0.23 is as a ratio with and without adjuvant chemotherapy. So an incredible unprecedented benefit, uh, regardless of uh, adjuvant chemotherapy. These patients with EGFR mutations tend to have even higher responses to platinum-based chemotherapy as compared to the wild type. So I'll implement, I would implement all these explanations and this rationale in my discussion with the patients. But to answer your question, if there is a, if there is a refusal uh, for chemotherapy, it would make completely irrational sense to proceed with adjuvant osimertinib based on the Adora trial results. Okay. Well, we have, uh, let's, uh, let's now address some of the questions that we have received from the audience. Um, how can we prevent or mitigate resistance of EGFR TKI therapy in the adjuvant setting? Well, if I, if I can comment to, you know, to this, I think this is where, um, and maybe he's not answering this question directly, but I think that we mitigate the resistance also by resecting the disease early. So we are not allowing the new clones of cells to develop. But once we primary tumor is resected and we potentially dealing with just some micrometastatic disease, I think at this point it's probably very difficult for us to say um, uh, how, how else we could sort of mitigate uh, resistance. I, I, I mean, Tina, can you tell us a little bit more about resistance, I think, that we have learned from in the metastatic setting for these TKI inhibitors? 
Yes, and I think you very eloquently uh, summarize for me how we can potentially mitigate resistance. I think it's offering our patients right early on in the biological evolution of the disease access to these therapies. Uh, as you mentioned, we can not only um, you know eliminate, suppress micrometastatic disease, but perhaps early on um, we can uh, um, minimize uh, the, uh, the the prevalence of clonal resistance and the takeover of those clones in determining um, relapse. Um, in the metastatic setting, uh, uh, mechanisms of resistance uh, uh, are being learned more and more, and we're actually implementing novel strategies based on the specific uh, type of uh, um, you know, mechanism of resistance that we see a rebiopsy when there is a new lesion um, after um, you know, a progression on, on TKIs. Those mechanisms are very different, right, between one drug and the other. Uh, but, but definitely having the patients to access those drugs in the postoperative setting should help us to prevent and this is and this is exactly how we progressed right from first generation to third generation of TKI inhibitors because the resistance was studied mainly in the metastatic setting uh, I think here's another important question what advice would you offer to pra practicing in the community and how to operationalize and improve the collaboration between oncologists and surgeons um, I think this is in incredibly important I think that we all need to view ourselves as a team trying to help uh, trying to help patient uh, patients achieve really the best long-term outcome uh, with their lung cancer. And therefore, this communication um, should, should happen, I think, early. Um, even, uh, even, you know, surgeons just essentially informing uh, their oncology colleagues or um, that, that they may be resecting someone, let's say with stage one or stage two, that, that they will uh, try to expedite the profiling. Um, I think that it's important to understand um, the local uh, resources in terms of uh, sending tissue, uh, discussion with pathologists, discussion with, uh, with other within their hospitals about the resources of how to get the surgical tissue, surgical specimen to an appropriate uh, testing lab for EGFR mutation um, and, and, and then alerting uh, both patients, obviously, and, and medical oncology colleagues about uh, that these results will be coming and that they are important in decision-making in the adjuvant setting. Boris, if I can add on that, I would just uh, like to mention for a few seconds to please, uh, to the community, uh, consider these conversations as an important variable in determining the outcome for your patients. Um, so these are absolutely critical to have early on. Also, because now we have trial with these agents in the stage 1A2 and three settings. So yeah, and for all your patients, uh, even with stage 1A to your medical oncologist and have these conversations early on. And I would like to address also this last patient over here that in the future, do you anticipate that it could be a hurdle to adopt neoadjuvant targeted therapy regimens given the time to surgery is very important? Um, well, I don't view it that way. I, I do think that the time for surgery was a concept that, that, that maybe we are changing our mind on this. Um, Maybe the time to surgery is important if we don't have patients who have to, who have a targetable mutation. But if we do have patients who have a targetable mutation, they're really quite protected with these drugs. And again, we are addressing local disease, the one that we can see on the scans. And then we also need to address the, 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 the possibility of distance spread and micrometastatic disease. And so if we have patients who have no mutation, then these neoadjuvant therapy drugs, I have honestly... On targeted regimens, I have yet to see patients who would progress on that regimen and would not benefit from it. So, so I do view it a little bit differently that rushing to surgery is not as important, that it's important to have a comprehensive plan.
Okay, um, I think we're coming to an end. So I would like to just summarize uh, and thank everybody for their intention that that the standard of care in lung cancer is changing and that surgical resection for local disease control is important as well as profiling patients, mainly for EGFR mutation that is now standard of care. In the future, we may see other targetable therapies come uh, become standard of care. Uh, but I think it's important to... Um, collaborate between surgeons and medical oncologists and also with our pathologists and tissue for sending it for profiling so the patients can get all of their uh, their, their treatment for their uh, benefit. Thank you very much. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FYQ860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.